electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, the China reopening begins as stocks surge to start the year. The K-Web, 15% gains since last Tuesday. We're going to talk with the CIO of the fund on how to play that space. Plus, a bull bear debate on coin. Why one Wall Street firm says the company will survive and even thrive in the long term. And then Piper and Jeffries both say Uber is a buy. We have what that means for the competition over there as well, John. Yeah, and Carl, let's kick things off with the tech rally we've seen the past two trading days. The Nasdaq uh, led Friday's gains and is leading once again today. Tech's the top sector. Some high profile and high beta names are leading. Take a look. You can see some gains in AMD, Salesforce, ServiceNow. The ARK ETF, SoFi, Unity, all seeing outsized gains. My question to you, D and Carl, is are the markets focused on the wrong thing here? Are investors brushing aside some fundamental things and focusing on the soft landing narrative that's formed? I can't help but notice, D, Friday, Macy's warned based on weak consumer demand. Now, they've been managing inventory well Uh, but said that after Cyber Week, demand really fell off more than expected. So uh, that stock is down about 8% Mm -hmm. right now. And then Lulu warned this morning, different story, higher inventory levels. So they're selling that through, but it looks like they're discounting a lot. They warned about margins. That stock is down, what, uh, almost almost 10%, nine and a half. Um, But those are an anomaly in this market, but are they pointing toward things to come this earnings season. They're an anomaly, maybe, but yeah, I would agree with you, John, maybe pointing to things to come. I mean, these are outsized moves for commentary that isn't even that harsh. And to your question, are people focusing on that soft landing? Yes, that has certainly been the case for the beginning of 2023, but they're going to have to focus on the fundamentals very soon because earnings season kicks off in what, a week, Carl? And investors are going to be have, are going to force to be looked at the micro. And for some of the names we cover day in and day out, some of the high growth names as well, their prospects have been changing. Whereas investors bought them for that high growth in the past, that may be changing in the year ahead. That might be coming down, changing the whole multiple story. Uh, certainly in retail, uh, what we're going to probably see at some point, guys, is some dispersion in results. I mean, look at Abercrombie today. Uh, that's going to uh, opened higher. That's going to take you back to May of last year in terms of a uh, stock price being that high. Uh, as Kramer would argue, it's all about the multiple now. It's going to be mm-hmm. about uh, maybe penalizing those companies that have stuck to a high premium and rewarding those who have a, a more affordable, uh, more tame uh, multiple. We'll see. Uh, kicking off a look at some of the biggest calls on the street today, we certainly want to pay attention 
attention to Apple. Bernstein cutting his target on Apple. He expects iPhone revenues to disappoint this year, sees potential downward revisions as the year goes on. In fact, he thinks all of IT hardware may struggle. He views names like Dell, HP, and IBM as trading stocks rather than long-term holds. Joining us with how he's playing the trade today, Annandale Capital founder and chairman George C. George, I'm curious to know uh, your view on sort of the consumer demand for hardware, obviously some of the inventory challenges within uh, the components of hardware. What, what are you thinking? Well, I think that that's probably a very wise short-term trading call that was made on Apple this morning. But I, th- I feel like any serious investor, Apple's a must-own long-term, so it's more of a trading call. I do think that things are going to be soft for a while to come. It's going to take a while to work all this out. What, how long and, and what's going to be the catalyst that does turn it around? Well, the catalyst to turn it around is going to be more economic growth, and, and we're not going to really uh, see that anytime soon. So it's going, it's going to be quite a while. We need, we need the Fed to quit and either stamp out or start cutting, and we're, we're many, many months away at a minimum of that occurring. It may not even occur this year. So it's, it's going to be a choppy market, and it's going to reflect a choppy economy. And sometimes these t- things take a lot of time. So I, I would agree with that gentleman on his trading call, but I think it's bad advice for an investor. Investor has to own Apple long term. Right. Isn't a, a broad China reopening a huge uh, positive uh, catalyst for Apple in particular? In the long term, I think it's going to be very bumpy in the short term because they did such a poor job at reversing their COVID strategy. They, they should have taken more of a Sweden approach over the last couple of years. Now they're abruptly, it's like scratching the needle across the record player for people who remember record players. They did it so harshly and abruptly, they're going to have a hard workout period for the next several months. But the second half of the year, China should be a real wind at the back of the markets and the economy here, too. You know, what's interesting is watching Apple uh, make these baby steps in diversifying their supply chain. I saw today that their India-made iPhones exports there surpassing $2.5 billion in nine months. That's twice the prior year's total. I mean, we know they're good at logistics, but even this massive challenge, I wonder how you think they're going to fare on that. These numbers are huge. You talk about how much how much product they're moving around in the world, and that's a big lumpy process. Apple's no longer a very nimble, eighty pound animal. It's an eight hundred pound gorilla, and it's it's going to be a big lift for them. But I just argue they're a little late in diversifying their supply chain. They were too confident in China too long, and they're they're going to pay a short term price and trying to adjust to that. It's going to be difficult for them. George, uh, we should also note that crypto is higher on this risk on market rally. Bitcoin above 17K, Coinbase surging. Even after two cautious calls, Jeffries believes Coinbase should be able to weather a crypto winter, but says it will be a steep climb to street estimates if Bitcoin prices cannot recover. JMP more bullish on the space, thinking companies like Coinbase could even, quote, thrive in the long term. But for now, slashing its price target in half and removing their rating on the stock. Uh, George, I think it comes down to a question on valuation. If Coinbase is going to survive or even thrive in the long term, does it still deserve that technology valuation? Regulation is going to make the place safer, but does it make it as compelling a business or does it make it look more like traditional financial services? I would much rather go to Las Vegas and place a bet on my Dallas Cowboys to win the Super Bowl than be involved in Coinbase. I think it's a a much less uh, fun and 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 good gamble. I think it's a gamble. I don't think it's anything more than that. And I think the Cowboys are probably going to lose this weekend, unfortunately. But I'd rather put my money on that because my heart's in the right place there. Okay, is that um, is that an indication of what you think about crypto as a whole? Then that's correct. I'm just not a fan at all. I, so I think so. There's nothing. 
in the space that would get you excited. You'd rather go to Vegas and bet on the Cowboys. I'd rather go to Vegas. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) All right. And finally, let's turn to the last mile. Both Piper Sandler and Jeffries buying in on Uber and taking a bearish stance on DoorDash. Piper had both stocks at uh, neutral, but uh, uh, ups uh, Uber and downs DoorDash. They note that Uber may be exposed to some of the same risks as Dash, but its scale gives it more room to breathe. Uh, Jeffries also sees Uber's scale helping its business and says DoorDash could see share gains slow. George, on both of these, uh, DoorDash so far, uh, the argument has been demand's going to get hit in a recession, but delivery demand has been surprisingly resilient post-pandemic. So do you agree with both the up on Uber and the down on Dash? I don't really have an opinion on Dash, but I am bullish on Uber. Our, our team here at Annandale Capital really likes Uber's franchise and thinks it's it's a great company and it's only going to get better in the years to come. The only question is, do you price it like a technology stock or do you price it like a utility? And I think that's yet to be seen. But for now, we're, we're very confident in Uber's prospects, especially in the next 12 to 24 months. What will make you convinced either way, whether it should be priced like technology or utility? It's got to be the growth rate, and we just don't know what that's going to look like yet. So that's a that's a bit of a of a conjecture on an investor's part. But I, I think that the the uh, odds more favor being an investor in, in Uber and, and taking the ride than, than being overly skeptical. It's just a great franchise. Do you get that information this year, given the economic slowdown, or do you need times to be more normalized before you can determine what the longer-term growth rate might be? Yeah, as an investor, I don't think we're going to know that for many years. So you, you have to believe in the story and you have to believe the growth rate is going to be strong in the next five years to be a player. And we are. We, we, we believe it's a good story and a great franchise and, and the, the business is going to get better in the next couple of years. So we're excited about it. All right. So you got to place your bet without uh, the information, at least for a few quarters that you need. George, thank you. Thank you all. I got stocks at session highs here this morning, getting some breaking news out of the New York Fed regarding inflation expectations. Let's get to Steve Leisman. Hey, Steve. Yeah, uh, Carlin, you know they follow that as a key indicator of their concern over inflation. And it fell again uh, down 0.2 to 5%. That's the lowest reading for the one year ahead inflation expectations since July of 2021. Now, the Fed is a bit more focused on the longer term inflation expectations. So the 5% for the one year over the three year course, the Fed's uh, survey shows that it's 3%, which is unchanged from November, and then a slight uptick in the five-year outlook to 2.4%. Those are the two that the Fed is most focused on. Expectations for prices for food, gas fell, uh, and inflation expectations remain high, though, for education, rent, medical care. Now, uh, expected household income grew 0.1% to 4.6%. That is a new series high. But spending expectations fell sharply to 5.9 from 6.9%. That's a full percentage point, but it's still quite a bit above the average for this particular survey. Uh, it had been before the pandemic in the 25 to 3% range, so people still expecting to spend a lot, just not as much as they did in the prior month, guys. Hey, Steve, uh, given all of the, uh, the reflections on wage growth over the weekend from the payroll print and some of the survey work regarding prices paid, has that altered uh, the view of what CPI may bring us on Thursday? I don't think so. I don't think that wage data is, is, is changing the outlook uh, 
for prices, but the CPI data uh, is is looked to show a little bit more relief again this month, and and I think that's going to be the key. The, the question uh, is, Carl, as we talked about in the ten o'clock hour, will the Fed budge? Is the Fed really listening to the uh, the data, or does it have a date with five percent is going to get there no matter what? Steve, and that leads to something maybe you can help me with that I don't get in this market. How can the market expect both a landing soft enough that stocks are rallying off of Friday's number and hard enough that the Fed's going to have to cut sooner than it expects? Um, You know, what exactly, Jonathan, it's a good question, and I understand your confusion, and I actually share your confusion. Uh, There are two different messages inside, I think, these rates. The one is the is the hard landing that the Fed will cut. The other is a, uh, a less of a concern about inflation. The market sees this data, uh, Jonathan, and it believes that essentially uh, uh, inflation is on the way down and the Fed ought to be responding to it. I think the market is priced for both outcomes. I think it's the same. The question would be yields would be even lower, I think, if there was a real concern about a hard landing in there. And I guess there's this fear, Steve, that um, that the Fed would have, you would think, that they might act too quickly and have a repeat of what happened in the 70s and 80s, right? Like, what lessons do we have from that period that would cause the Fed to hold back, even if the inflation's looking better, inflation data is looking better? Yeah, yeah, Deirdre, every time I listen to the Fed, I get a history lesson in the 70s. That's what they is really animating their 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 um their policy right now, this idea of not repeating the mistake when there was an increase in rates and then they, uh, I guess, chickened out is the best way to put it, mm-hmm. and inflation came back. And so they're insisted they're not going to repeat the mistakes. The question is, that one of the debates that a lot of economists are having is, is this really the 70s? I mean, do we not have a more globalized world? Do we not have uh, new technologies? Hey, we have a show called Tech Check. Um, <laughs> you know, things that would bring, put pressure on inflation in the ways that didn't exist in the 70s. Yeah, and you hear that from the likes of Kathy Wood and others, that inflationary these days is more deflationary. Um, Well, certainly some fodder for the soft landing bulls today. The Nasdaq near session highs up more than 2%. Thank you, Steve Leisman. Still to come this hour, Jack Ma steps away from Ant Group as Chinese tech continues to rally. Plus, there are more than 1,000 private companies with valuations of more than a billion dollars, also known as unicorns. We'll take a look at which names could be next to go public. Tech Check is just getting started. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. 
To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Take a look at the winners on the NASDAQ 100. A lot of chips and electric cars. Tesla, advanced micro devices, NVIDIA, Lucid, and Autodesk. Carl? Welcome back, everybody. The Nasdaq outperforming today and lead the rally on Friday, uh, led the rally on Friday, posting the best day since November. Everything from big cap to semis to software got that bump. Our next guest says the move doesn't signal an all clear to buy tech at Nislot, Nislot, not yet. David Lefkowitz joins us, head of Equities Americas at UBS Global Wealth Management. David, I wonder, I mean, was Friday's ebullience overdone? We're certainly getting some follow through today. What needs to happen to make it legit? Yeah, thanks, Carl. So, yeah, look, obviously the tech sector and, and growth companies more broadly have been under a fair amount of pressure the last year. I would say, you know, first it started off as concerns about interest rates, and then, but I think more recently it's, it's morphed into concerns about growth. And I think this is the big issue, is that we know a lot of these companies benefited from the early days of the recovery from the pandemic, and, and I think there's still going to be, now we're on the other side of that, and I think there's still probably some adjustment that needs to continue as, as all the spending that was pulled forward during the pandemic. Again, now we're on the other side of that. I think it's going to take some time to, for, for customers to digest all that they, that they splurged on. Uh, so I just think that means still a, a more challenging growth environment for, for some of the, the tech and, and growth complex companies that are out there. Right. Uh, that's certainly the, the tone that, for example, uh, Nadella uh, touted a couple of weeks ago or, or last week, just looking for a period of normalization that, in his view, uh, could last a couple of years. I mean, are you looking at that kind of timeline uh, to where relative valuations in tech are, are, are in a period where they begin to look attractive again? I mean, it, I think it's hard to say, you know, if it's how long, how, how if it's going to be two years. But but I do think uh, it, it, we still have some wood to chop in terms of getting back to, say, some sort of reacceleration in, in earnings growth. And then when we combine that with you know, valuations are still somewhat lofty. Now, they've improved quite a bit. Uh, so that's the good news. Uh, but, but they still do look a little bit expensive relative to other segments of the market. And then I think, I think the last thing here is that some of the work that we've done shows that when inflation is higher than 3%, and we know inflation is coming down, but it still is higher than 3%, value stocks tend to outperform. So there's a range of factors that we'll be looking at to, to gauge the outlook. But as we sit here right now, uh, still think it, it, it's premature to get back into growth and tech companies. Yeah, I'm looking at, at a note from uh, mid-December, but it's, it's uh, your six-month view and most preferred staples, energy, healthcare, but Infotech doesn't even make neutral, right? It's one of your least preferred. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, look, you know, we, we've seen you know, some slowdown in, in cloud. You know, we, we know that these companies were, were big beneficiaries during the rush to digitization. I think there's some digestion now that, uh, that has to go on there. We've already seen some slowdown in cloud. We think, we think there's probably more to go. Um, you know, some, some in the smartphone market, I mean, just a huge pull forward of, of demand in, uh, in 20 and 21. And I think that's going to be challenging uh, going forward. So just, just I would say the best way to, to phrase that, Carl, is just we still probably have some digestion phase ahead of us. Uh, and, and valuations, they've improved, but we don't think they're, they're at compelling levels at this point. 
Right. It does sound like within tech, there may be some silver linings that you see in, in telecom, for example, uh, just given the defensive nature. Maybe even, I don't know, was, is it fair to say uh, the ad market is, is maybe the, the least of tech's problems at the moment? Um, yeah, yeah. So look, you know, some different segments of, and we, 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 we talk about tech, you know, very broadly, but we know it cuts across a few different sectors. Um, so your comments on the ad market, you know, we know that those, that weakness showed up earlier. Uh, so it's possible that, that it, it, it also emerges from this digestion phase earlier. Uh, now, obviously we still have some of the concerns about, you know, whether or not we're going to have a hard landing or not. And obviously that would affect digital advertising. So yeah, that, that's, that's an area worth keeping an eye on. Um, you know, similar with, with e-commerce kind of went into the slowdown early, could be, could be one of those areas that, that comes out, uh, you know, first. Uh, but I think we still think that areas like energy look interesting. And in general, we want to be playing defense. You know, we still think there are risks here uh, for the overall market. And in and, and areas like consumer staples, healthcare, just give you that defensive exposure in a market where there still are some, uh, you know, pretty material downside risks if we, if we do enter a hard landing. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether that sentiment, if it's consensus, uh, puts a cap on at least the, the rally we've gotten the last couple of days as we're back to 39.50 uh, today. David, appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right, after the break, Brazil. More than 400 people arrested there as supporters of ex-president Bolsonaro storm government buildings. We'll have a look at the role social media played in the lead up to the election there and may have played in the attack. Stay with us. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Just days after the two-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, election deniers in Brazil storming its Congress and other government buildings over the weekend, protesting the defeat of right-wing incumbent former President Jair Bolsonaro. Just like January 6th, uh, social media playing a key role with organizers posting on messaging platform Telegram, perhaps elsewhere as well. Content in favor of the protest sweeping across TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, what does that mean in the ongoing battle for content moderation on social media? Let's bring in Julia Borston. Julia, um, Washington Post reporting that Elon Musk fired the entire moderation team in Brazil in the fall ahead of this. So there should be questions about what happened on Twitter leading up to this. Yeah, it's interesting just talking to some people close to the situation, trying to figure out sort of where most of this conversation was happening. One thing I'm hearing is that these days, if something is happening online, it's happening on all the platforms. It doesn't happen just on Telegram or just on Twitter or just 
on Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp, but it is likely to be happening across the board. It does seem like a lot of the actual organizing um, of this riot did happen on Telegram. We did reach out to both Telegram and Twitter for comments. They did not get back to us yet, but we do have a statement from Meta, um, Meta, which is, of course, parent company Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, um, saying that they did declare the rioting a violating events that they would remove content that supports or praises these actions. Um, so from what I understand, Meta has really been working to get ahead of this type of issue ever since the January 6th riots. They've been very sensitive to this, and there's been a lot of concern about what was, could potentially happen in Brazil, John. But in terms of regulation, it seems so hard to figure out what's going to happen now mm -hmm. because there is a bipartisan push to regulate these companies and content on these companies, but the type of regulation that Democrats and Republicans want is very different. Julie, it's interesting who you heard from and who you didn't hear from. Meta obviously feels pressure from its shareholders, from its board, from its oversight board. Telegram, as you said, and Twitter, they didn't return a request for comment. These are private companies. And a lot of sort of the most violent rhetoric and the direct organizing has taken place on a platform like Telegram. Does this kind of underline the idea that it's better to be private these days if you're a social media company? Keep your head down. Well, better or worse. I mean, one thing that's so interesting is that these companies used to really work together to help damp down on this type of really dangerous content. And it was important for there to be open lines of communication between the likes of Twitter along with Meta and Snap. And the problem is now if that Twitter has gone radio silent, they are not collaborating and working to bring down dangerous content. From what I understand, they have not been participating in this sort of joint effort that we used to see um, to try to remove some of this dangerous content. So I think the fact that Twitter has lost all the people who used to work in the security measures, who used to work in Brazil um, to address some of these potential issues, I actually think that this could draw more scrutiny of Twitter from regulators if it turns out that they're not being responsible and failing to comply with some of the commitments they made to remove violent content. And maybe lawmakers, Julia, what, what I wonder about this, um, this incident in Brazil is does it swing the narrative in these hearings and conversations in Congress that are going to take place back away from the focus on free speech and toward the focus on protecting uh, democratic institutions? Because if there are Congress people who are you know, saying, why are you regulating speech so much? Uh, now folks like Meta and others can say, well, look what just happened in Brazil. Do, yeah, do you want it, that to happen again in the U.S.? Yeah, and it all comes down to this question, at least in terms of regulation here in the U.S., about Section 230, this question of whether or not open platforms should be responsible for the content that is shown on their platforms. We've heard a bipartisan push to regulate 230, what that or to change uh, Section 230, but what that change looks like is unclear. I do mm -hmm. think, John, and you, you and Deirdre and I have been talking a lot about this, a lot of the regulation actually ends up coming out of Europe, and this idea mm -hmm. that there's European regulation to hold these platforms accountable for the content on their platform. And I think that, yes, Twitter is private, but that doesn't mean that it's going to skate in terms of not being responsible or not taking appropriate action. And so that's why I think it's going to be so interesting to see what kind of scrutiny mm -hmm. or spotlight now comes on Elon Musk if he was, say, irresponsible in firing the teams that, that pull off inappropriate content or, or violent content. Yeah, and perhaps raises questions um, over what kind of regulations priced into those public companies, too, something we ask often. Julia, thanks very much.
Let's get a CNBC News update. Bertha Coombs has that for us. Good morning, Bertha. Hey, good morning, Deirdre. Here's what's happening at this hour. A Georgia grand jury has finished its probe of the 2020 election. They were looking into whether former President Trump and his allies committed any crimes while trying to overturn his election loss. The grand, jury final, the grand jury's final report now goes to prosecutors who will decide whether to bring charges. Former McDonald's CEO Steve Esterbrook has agreed to pay $400,000 to settle SEC charges that he misrepresented the reasons for his firing three years ago. Esterbrook, or Easterbrook has also agreed to a five-year ban from serving as an officer or director of a company reporting to the SEC. Traffic back to normal in the Suez Canal. A ship carrying grain from Ukraine ran aground this morning. Tugboats were quickly able to tow it out of the shipping lanes. And Avatar, the way of water, brought in more than $500 million over the weekend. Big haul at the box office brings the movie's total to more than $1.7 billion, making it the seventh highest grossing movie ever. About $600 million bigger than the jackpot now for Mega Millions, Carl. <laughs> Which we know you like to play, Bertha, <laughs> uh, Bertha Coombs. Uh, still Not ahead today, investors are flocking to Chinese tech as the country opens for business. But as COVID cases spike over there, is there too much optimism? Also, a quick programming note, CNBC's coverage of the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference continues today. Our Meg Terrell is going to sit down with Moderna's Stefan Bansell on Closing Bell. And tomorrow on Tech Check, you will hear from the CEO of Novartis, plus B of A picking some winners in the biotech sector. For that, you can head over to CNBC.com slash pro to find out the names. Dow up 270. We're back in two. Welcome back to Tech Check. Let's get a look at the markets. Pretty nice Monday shaping up. Equities are higher after that sharp rally on Friday that left the markets higher for the first week of 2023. Better than 2% gains here on the NASDAQ, one and a third or so on the S&P. Tech and consumer discretionary. Healthcare is your laggard. Solid gains for some of the semi-names today as well. Every member of the SMH is higher today, and the ETF is back above the 200-day moving average. Abercrombie & Fitch on pace for the best day since November after raising the their guidance, that stock, D, is up 80% in just three months. Yeah, and the Chinese names continue to help out that rally also. Uh, speaking of Chinese stocks, Jack Ma, once known and in China as the people's billionaire, he continues to see his empire diminish as he becomes a persona non grata at the companies that he founded. Yes, Alibaba shares, they continue their recent surge, but at a cost here, nearly half a trillion dollars in market value has been shed since its October 2020 peak. Now, Ma has given up control of its fintech subsidiary Ant Group as it nears a completion of a two-year regulatory-driven restructuring that's making the company look a lot different than it once did at a $300 billion valuation. You might remember that that IPO was abruptly pulled in November of 2020, and that was after Ma took aim at regulators in a speech, marking the beginning of that crackdown on the tech sector. Investors seeing Ma's exit here as a step towards reviving a possible IPO for Ant, which would be a major windfall for Alibaba. But Ant is playing it safe for now, says it doesn't have any current plans to go public. Meanwhile, the K-Web is up over 14% since the start of the year. That's not that many days. Investors reading into the latest is more evidence that the broader crackdown on tech may be coming to an end. Guys, I think you know how I feel about that. We never actually know. Um, but on the surface, there are plenty of reasons to be excited about China. There's the reopening. Importantly, there's support and stimulus for the property sector. However, John, 
it may come down to how consumers feel. Do they trust that this clampdown um, is over on tech? And do they feel confident to go out again? We know that, yes, the reopening is happening, but with that comes that massive surge in COVID cases that's yeah. going to make for a bumpy reopening. And not just that, but it just feels, Carl, like some of these companies probably aren't the same. Like, imagine there was some uh, crackdown on EVs, EV companies in the U.S., right? And they forced Elon Musk out of Tesla. And then we're like, okay, everybody back in the pool. Everything's fine. Would Tesla still be Tesla? I mean, is... is China's tech sector still what it was when you force out yeah. and reduce the influence of founders like Jack Ma. Yeah, uh, and then when you have uh, external pressures, uh, say, D, limiting their ability to invest in chips or technology, uh, that race is very fluid at the moment. Yeah, and John, thank you for pointing to the fundamentals. A very important part of this story, growth at the likes of Alibaba and Tencent has come down a lot. So even if you do want to get back in, these are not the same companies that they looked like a few years ago. Let's dive deeper into China Tech. Um, we're going to continue to ask this question. Has the market gotten ahead of itself with this huge rally? We are in overbought territory here. Crane Shares CIO Brendan Ahern joins us now. Uh, Brendan, let me ask you, how do you think about the makeup of the K-Web going forward? The past few years have showed us that policy and not necessarily fundamentals are driving these stocks. So do you rethink how this is made up? Do you give more weight um, to state-backed companies over the private ones like Alibaba and Tencent that currently dominate the ETF? No, we love the names that we hold within KWeb Deidre because they are the transmission engines for domestic consumption as it occurs online in China. And the reopening of China means it's time for consumers to get back into the malls and restaurants. And we believe that the companies we hold, particularly the e-commerce companies we hold, uh, really are beneficiaries of consumer confidence coming back, consumer spending in China, as well as we hold a number of online travel companies, you know, obviously Trip.com. And you're seeing just very, very significant movement even over the weekend between Hong Kong and China, the international flights opening up. So we feel really well positioned. And, and certainly we think a lot of the concerns that you know have been highlighted, that's the wall of worry. These stocks are going to climb. And with the underweight allocation to China, we think this, you know, the K-Web can keep grinding well, higher. Brendan, are they the transmission engines or were they the transmission engines? There has been so much value destruction over the last few years. We know that Beijing has the ability to pick winners. And there's even concerns about some of the newer names like Pinduoduo and Meituan. Um, how can we believe that these are going to continue to drive value going forward when so much has been destroyed? Yeah, certainly you know, the government needs these companies. That one of the things, Deidre, that's happening is as the global economy uh, slows down, it's decreasing demand for the world's factories. So China's exports have been slowing over the last several months. We expect that trend to continue just due to Fed tightening here in the U.S., other central banks. And so China, the Chinese government recognizes that. So what levers do they have to pull? They can't create foreign demand for their goods. So they have to raise domestic consumption, which explains why we're seeing the pivot, not only on the internet regulation, but also the significant pivot on zero COVID. They have to raise domestic yeah. consumption. Right. Um, well, then let me ask you, Brandon, what kind of companies will benefit from China's reopening. Almost everything, as we've said, is surging, especially Chinese tech. But look at what happened here in the U.S. The reopening caused investors to sort of reevaluate those high multiples that tech has seen. Why would it be any different in China? 
I think you know you, this is very different from the reopening trade. This is getting back to say the the pre twenty twenty levels where Chinese consumer confidence, due to zero COVID, due to the decline in real estate prices, has been really weighed down. And I think Deidre, as we head into the Q four earnings season, which will kick off after the Chinese uh, Lunar New Year in two weeks, uh, you're going to see a lot of a lot of people looking at the forward-looking guidance. And I think the early indications, if you look at the travel, the mobility numbers, a lot of these things we're providing daily um, at craneshares.com, uh, this is going to show that the consumer is coming back online. And again, we are big okay. believers that the companies in with KWA will capture that rebound in spending. We'll see. As we talked about, that reopening could be a little bumpy. Um, we'll see how the consumer reacts, certainly going into the next earnings season. Brendan, thanks so much for being with us. Brendan Ahrens from Crane Shares. And after the break, 2022 was historically bad. It was brutal for the IPO market. The Renaissance IPO ETF down 50% in the past 12 months. But 2023, could it open up the floodgates again with a number of multi-billion dollar companies waiting in the wings? We'll take a look at who might be next to go public. Don't go away. Welcome back. The IPO market had a lackluster 2022 but the pipeline for tech IPOs keeps growing. There are now approximately 1,210 private companies globally with valuations, at least for now, above a billion dollars, compared to 513 in 2020 and 950 in 2021. So which companies might be the first to take the IPO leap? Our next guest highlighting names like Stripe, Databricks, and Instacart as top candidates. Joining us now, MKM Partners, Rohit Kulk. Carney, uh, Rohit, welcome. So tell me, I keep hearing from VCs and founders that they're being uh, advised to stockpile at least 24 months of capital b- before they'll be able to raise again, which suggests to me that a lot of people think uh, the IPO market won't open up until the back half of 24 at the soonest. You think that's wrong? Uh, I would agree with that. As in, I think uh, several things need to happen even before we start thinking about IPOs. We put out a crystal ball note um, contemplating which companies are most likely to go public, but when is going to be uh, very hard to determine. I think uh, second half of 23 is probably going to look a little bit better than first half, uh, assuming that uh, it's mostly macro driven. Uh, uh, John, I think uh, the moment we realize that uh, we are at the end of the rate hike period, I think that gives a realization to private markets, the VCs that, this is the new era of discount rates, new era of what uh, valuations could look like. And then we start building up from there. So, so, yeah, I agree. So what should investors make of moves like Vista's move to take out Duck Creek this morning, which mm-hmm. has that stock up more than 40 percent last time I looked? It suggests that private equity is seeing value in some of these stocks yep. that trade around, you know, under 10 billion, in this case, under uh, two or three billion uh, market cap. And uh, and that, you know, longer term, a lot of these are, are going to do quite well. Duck Creek, I think, went public just two years ago. Yep. I I think uh, uh, healthy M&A activity of public companies probably precedes healthy M&A activity of private companies. So I think still the private company valuations are still far apart from their public peers. So uh, private equity is looking at uh, public uh, companies that there is there is value there. Long term, there are uh, there is potential there. I, I still feel that there is still a pretty big gap between what 
private companies that were valued during say early 21 or uh, late 21 still think what they are valued at so mm. we still need that valuation kind of cliff to happen for some of those companies companies like instacart maybe klarna some of them have taken that hit already so perhaps those are the ones to monitor in the first half if uh, they are willing to go public and be the guinea pig out there but i think vast majority of the private companies are still believing that they can grow into the valuation that they saw or were given uh, back in 21. Yeah, we see Duck Creek up about 47%. That brings us back to what I was saying uh, right before we started hearing from you. This number of, you know, more than 1,200 mm-hmm. companies supposedly with valuations above a billion dollars, you're saying, and I think a lot of people would say this, they're, they're probably not going to be that many in a few months because those valuations, a lot of them, are coming down. I agree. As in, uh, again, uh, it's anybody's guess. Probably uh, the real number is uh, 30 to 40 percent less than that, uh, more than 1,000 that's been circulated in the private markets and uh, private research. Uh, I feel uh, uh, six months from now, that number is going to be maybe 40 percent lower is is our best guess. Uh, but that would be a slow moving uh, kind of, uh, as you can, as you know, this like private companies hate down rounds. Uh, private companies hate to see their valuations go down and that that recapitalization tends to uh, mess up some of the things in the cap table. So I feel it's going to be a slow process and that's going to hold back the IPO market in the first half. That should coincide with the rate hike situation and that should probably open up what um, we think could be a a rebound in the second half of this year. All right. Thank you. Rohit Kalkarni from MKN. Thank you. Coming up next, Vince McMahon back at WWE and exploring a sale. We have who might want to buy it and some names hitting all-time highs right now. TJX, Progressive, and Caterpillar as well with the Dow up 240. Stay with us. Vince McMahon back at WWE and exploring a sale. Our Julia Borston is with us and has a look at some potential buyers. Julia. Well, Carl, after retiring as CEO last year amid sexual misconduct allegations, Vince McMahon, who is the majority owner of WWE, is returning to figure out a sale of the company. McMahon saying that this is the only way for WWE to fully capitalize on the opportunity around media rights negotiations and industry-wide demand for quality content and live events, saying, quote, my return will allow WWE, as well as any transaction counterparties, to engage in these processes knowing they will have the support of the controlling shareholder. WWE has hired J.P. Morgan to advise on a potential sale, according to people familiar, which now shifts the spotlight to potential buyers, including CNBC's parent company Comcast. There's also Fox, which has a linear TV deal with WWE for Friday Night Smackdown. Amazon, which has been ramping up spending on sports content for its prime video offering. Disney, which could use the content to bolster ESPN and ESPN+. There's also Endeavor, which already has a foothold in the space after buying UFC in 2021, or Liberty Media, which owns Formula One. Now, Warner Brothers Discovery and Netflix are perhaps less likely buyers because of the former's debt load and the latter's reluctance to invest in live sports or any live content. MKM saying, quote, Comcast is the logical acquirer for WWE, given its existing exposure to the business through its domestic licensing rights to one, Raw and USA Network, and two, monthly premium live events on Peacock. 
We reached out to Comcast, again, our parent company, for comment. No word yet back, back yet. But I do want to point out that WWE shares, they're up about 25% since it was announced that McMahon was returning on Thursday. 4.5% of those gains were today. Guys? You know, Julia, it's so interesting. You mentioned so many of the we talk a lot about NFL, NBA rights and the appreciation of those franchises in terms of their value. But can we look at racing and wrestling and mixed martial arts in the same lens? How, how far does the halo extend? Well, look, I think there's an increased attention and what it gets to get viewers to tune in in real time, right? It's all about what's the appeal of real time viewing, because that's where advertising is most valuable. There's no doubt that the NFL is incredibly valuable. Also, NBA, we're going to be watching those NBA rights come up for grabs. Those are the next sort of massive media rights that are going to come up for grabs. But I think that as the linear TV channels try to figure out what makes their ads most valuable, that's where the focus shifts to sports. And look, there is only a limited amount of um, and, you know, NFL, NBA type rights mm -hmm. to go around. And there is a more niche and devoted audience, those smaller for WWE and also the likes of UFC. Yeah, certainly. Julia, thanks so much for the rundown. And don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Plus, keep an eye on Tesla. Higher despite reports of lengthening wait times in China. You can see it's up, wow, nearly 8%. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing before we go. It's been a brutal start to the year for tech layoffs following those announcements last week from Salesforce and Amazon. Now we're seeing those cuts extend beyond the sector. Goldman Sachs reportedly set to start cutting more than 3,000 employees in the days ahead. And then there's McDonald's planning a wave of cost cuts and layoffs across its corporate staff, shifting priorities to focus on opening more restaurants, which is interesting, guys, because you're cutting down on the corporate staff, so the white-collar jobs, but when you're opening more restaurants, that needs more hiring of some of those other jobs in the service industry, which we know there hasn't been a lot of slack yet, Carl. Uh, that's true, although in the case of McDonald's, uh, some of their new formats rely, John, a little less on labor, a little more on technology. So it would be interesting to see if they try to pivot to a model that is more about tech engineering and less about labor engineering. We'll see. Yeah, good point. Though In a recession, if that's what we're heading into, people eat more at McDonald's. So there, there could be some preparation for that as well. On the Goldman thing, I want to point out CNBC's Hugh Sun nailed the story three weeks ago when he said that Goldman was going to cut in January up to 8% of staff, which would have been 3,900, so pretty much right on the nose. So the question and eyebrow raiser for me is, this was planned a month ago, before we got to the back end of Q4, which we've seen Lulu and Macy's reacting to over the last couple of trading days. So does that mean there's more to come for this area, Carl, or does it mean that actually from Goldman's perspective, things perhaps weren't as bad as for the retailers. Meanwhile, a, a quick programming note, sorry. We will speak with Medtronic's CEO, Jeff Martha, tomorrow right here on Tech Check also, also from JPN. Carl? Yeah, a very important conference as we work our way through that. And then, of course, CPI on Thursday and the bank earnings beginning Friday. Every sector, though, uh, green today with the exception of healthcare, as it's truly a risk on today to start the week. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.